everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I have with me Professor Dr. Andy Nicelli. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thanks for having me. And uh, Andy is a friend of mine. He is uh, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and New Testament at Bethlehem uh, College and Seminary, Bethlehem Baptist College and Seminary. He's also an elder at the North Church, which is formerly the North Campus of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He has two PhDs, one in theology from Bob Jones and another in New Testament exegesis and theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He teaches courses on Greek exegesis, New Testament, biblical theology, systematic theology, and ethics. And he is married to his wife, Jenny, with whom he has four daughters. He has produced an absolute ridiculous amount of books and publications, so I'm not going to try to mention and list those. Oftentimes, they've focused on Keswick theology and a theology of sanctification. He's looked at the conscience, and then he also writes on various New Testament and biblical theological studies. You can find a full list of his publications on his website where he archives a lot of his work. That's andynicelli.com. The, the focus of our conversation today, um, as you see from the title of the episode, is divorce and remarriage. And Andy, a while back, wrote a uh, academic journal, journal article for Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal called What the New Testament Teaches About Divorce and Remarriage. And that's really going to frame that. That's kind of the launching pad for our discussion today. He also recently produced a commentary on 1 Corinthians in the ESV expository, expository commentary series, which it addresses some of the key passages in this discussion. And if you're a member of Crossway, we also have a, a policy on divorce and remarriage that you can check out. Um, I suspect it would be similar to what Andy Church, Andy's church uses since we borrowed uh, Bethlehem Baptist's policy and adapted it, uh, but very similar. Um, and before we get started, we do realize that the topic of divorce and remarriage um, is a very personal question for some that may bring up many emotions for them. Uh, maybe you are divorced or even remarried. Maybe you have parents who were divorced and remarried. Or maybe you're currently in a marriage where you have been contemplating divorce and if that's something that you should do. Um, first, we want to make sure that we are submitting to scripture, notwithstanding any experiences that we may bring to this discussion, even as those experiences are not irrelevant and our experiences still matter. But secondly, there is forgiveness for those who have not followed scripture in this area. Um, there is always opportunity as well to acknowledge that we have not followed scripture, to repent and to see, seek to submit to scripture in this matter from this point forward. Thirdly, this is an area where many Christians have disagreed with each other and with good reasons on their side of the debate. And so we should respect each other's viewpoints as well as differently calibrated consciences on this matter. And we can disagree and differ with each other and still belong to the same churches, for instance. And then lastly, divorce and remarriage is an area where our society and our culture has become quite loose. And so we should be uh, considerate to its potential impact on us and our own thinking and seek to diligently submit ourselves to scripture, aware of our susceptibility to adapt to the thinking of our culture. So those are some throat clearing things I just want to say at the outset as we begin this conversation. But Andy, let me begin by allowing you to lay some of the land for us. Um, what have been the different ways Christians have historically approached the question of divorce and remarriage? That is, what are the different views that are out there? 
Yeah, and before I answer that, I'll just say um, it was a delight to spend about three years as a member of Crossway Community Church under Pastor Mike Bullmore and others in Kenosha, and to be part of the team that the church that launched your church. Yeah, so I remember when you first started. So it's sweet to be able to serve you. And I, I should I should have mentioned this as well. There's other personal connections. You grew up in the Milwaukee area, actually. I lived um, there for five years, yeah. Okay. In Menominee Falls, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, the church that I came from, Lake Drive Baptist, I believe you had some interaction there, like you were- I was an interim pastor there for about a year. Okay. And then, yeah. yes, you know the founding, for those who are a part of Crossway, you're listening to this, you know the founding pastor, Jason Dolman. He's right. friends with Andy. And so there's a lot of connections to our yeah. church. So yeah, it's, it's and great And you went to, to Trinity. And I went to Trinity. We both went to Trinity. So yeah. lots of different interactions. But right, um, so anyways- the there. There are about three main views on divorce and remarriage, and in the journal article you referenced, there's a table that just starts it off. So if, if your listeners want to just Google Nacelli, what the New Testament teaches about divorce and remarriage, I can see it, but I'll try to just describe it here. So uh, there are views on divorce, and then there are views on divorce, uh, on remarriage after divorce. So the, the three views kind of uh, hinge on how you understand both of those items. So here's what I call view number one. Never initiate divorce and never remarry. So it's never legitimate to initiate a divorce. And then it's never legitimate to remarry after a divorce, uh, as long as your, your former spouse is alive. So the most influential proponent of that view is, is John Piper, at least in modern day evangelicalism. The second view is sometimes divorce and then never remarry. So like the, the first view, it's, uh, it says that remarriage is never legitimate after divorce as long as your former spouse is alive, but it is legitimate when the divorce is legitimate. So that's the same with the first view. But the difference is that sometimes divorce is legitimate, and there are a couple different ways to handle that. One is to say it's it's permissible only for sexual immorality or physical desertion. And then another view is, is that plus other actions that break the marriage covenant, like physical abuse. So that second view, sometimes divorce, never remarry. Um, that used to be, uh, the best known proponent used to be Bill Heth. And now it's probably Gordon Wenham. And the third view is sometimes divorce and sometimes remarry. So under this view, just like the second view, uh, sometimes divorce is legitimate, so there's two subviews. It, it's either legitimate for sexual morality or physical desertion, or also for actions that break the marriage covenant. And then remarriage is legitimate when the divorce is legitimate. Legitimate. That view, that third view, is by far the the, the most common among evangelical academics. Uh, I hold it myself. Uh, the other views are minority views. That doesn't mean that the majority view is right. But I'm just, mm-hmm. that, that's the way it happens to fall out, I think, in the pastoral world. Now, there's a fourth view that I don't include in that chart, which would be basically that um, divorce and remarriage are almost always permissible. That's kind of like a default view in American culture. Sure. And unfortunately, it's default view in many churches. And I don't even consider that view as viable. It's not in line with scripture. Yeah, yeah. And for those listening, the the third view, the view that Andy represents would also be my own view. That would also be Dan Allen's view. Um, and that is 
sort of what we represent in the policy that we have as a church, although we allow people to have some of those stricter views and we want to respect yeah. their conscience. Let me just clarify for that yeah. third view. I'll distinguish between three A and three B. Yeah, that would be so three A is saying that the only permissible reasons to get a divorce are for sexual immorality or desertion. That's it. And three B would say it's that plus other actions that break the marriage covenant, like physical abuse. And so you know, Wayne Gruden, for example, used to hold three A and then recently switched to three B. Mm-hmm. Um now that three A view, some hold that view, but then they talk about physical desertion in a way that makes it kind of like an umbrella that includes physical abuse. Yeah, they would yeah. call that a subset of desertion. Yeah. So different ways people uh, discuss that. Yeah. Yeah. So some people have like an there's almost like an additional category beyond desertion and sexual morality. Other people included it within there. But there's those are the three main views for those who are listening. Um, like you said, you can Google uh, Andy Nicelli divorce. You'll find his chart. Otherwise, I'm going to include that chart in the notes on my website where I host this. You can see it there as well. Um, but that will this this is a very difficult conversation and how you network different passages together in scripture. And so uh, even just describing the views could feel a little bit confusing, I imagine, for people. So seeing that chart will be helpful. But again, the view number one, divorce is never permissible. Like you shouldn't seek it. It's one thing if your spouse divorces you, but you shouldn't initiate it and remarriage would never be permissible. Divorce is permissible with certain exceptions that scripture identifies, but then remarriage would not be. That's view two. And then view number three would say that divorce is permissible in certain exceptions and when legitimate, remarriage would be permissible. Um, all right, so now let's get into the text themselves. And I want to break this down by first looking at uh, the gospel passages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are passages on divorce and remarriage in each of the synoptic gospels, as well as then there's some passages in Paul. But let's start with the synoptic gospel passages. Um, how should we understand these statements from Jesus regarding divorce and remarriage, Andy? Um, and maybe you can take us to one of the passages. Like, I'll kind of let you take your pick of if there's one you think is most helpful to start in. Well, here's the thing when you're addressing this. If you start with Matthew's or you start with Mark and Luke, it can really affect how you frame the whole issue hmm. because uh, Mark and Luke don't explicitly mention exception clauses the way that Matthew does in two passages. Right. So there's a way to look at this where if you start with Mark and Luke and say, that's the clear, and we interpret the unclear in light of the clear, then you can kind of uh, explain away the exception clauses in Matthew. So I'm happy to start anywhere, but uh, I'll just go in canonical order and start with Matthew, and I'll explain the the Mark and Luke in a bit. So there are two passages in Matthew, Matthew 5 and 19. Uh, Matthew 5, is it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says it was uh, said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, so here's what Jesus says about it. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the, the phrase I, I just called the exception clause is where he says, except on the ground of, in the Greek word, porneia, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So on the face of it there, it sounds like he's saying divorce is not an option unless there's sexual morality. That's what he's saying there. And then another passage that's longer is Matthew 19, 3 to 12, which says 
uh, the same thing, but uh, it, it has more teaching in there. But verse nine says, whoever, Matthew nineteen nine, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So that's, those are the two big passages to, to go to in Matthew. And the, the views one and two versus views three, view, versus view three, understand these passages pretty differently. Um, so which direction do you want to go? I could talk and talk and talk about this. Yeah. Let's park on these Matthew passages for a bit. Um, okay. What does Jesus mean? Let's start with the, the use of the pornea there. What does he mean when he says, as the ESV translates it, sexual immorality? Right. Um, so uh, if you are an English speaker and you hear pornea, it sounds like pornography. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where the word pornography comes from. So pornea is like it's an umbrella term for any kind of sexual immorality. So some people assume it's referring only to adultery. That is, if a man is married to a woman, if he has sex with another woman who's not his wife, that that's pornea. Now, that's an example of pornea. There's actually another Greek word, makea, for explicitly that. Pornea is any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman lawfully. So that includes having sex with farm animals, for example. Like, where's the passage that says I can't do that? This is it, pornea. It it covers everything. I think it also includes... Uh, sexual sins short of intercourse, like looking at sexually explicit films and pictures. I'd call that an example of pornea. So go ahead. Yeah. So like pornography, um, <laughs> where, where do you would, where would you draw the line though? Where like Jesus, you know, in Matthew five talks about committing adultery in your heart where it's not just physical acts, but even the lust Would this grant, you know, license for divorce. If a spouse, like lusts after someone else. Um, when, yeah, when we start so, getting expansive, how do how do we how do we yep, sort yep. that out? Gotta be really careful here in our culture today. If you were to say that if a, a man looks at any kind of sexually explicit image that that is grounds for divorce, then probably most of the marriages, even in our churches, would say we have grounds for divorce. I don't I don't think that's what's uh, a sufficient grounds. What I have in mind is it could be a sufficient grounds if we're talking someone has given himself over to this sin of pornography, indulging in it, and it's constant, it's unrepentant, it's 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 all-consuming. Like, it's hard for me to say that doesn't break the marriage covenant. Sure. So I would probably put that kind of sin under breaking the marriage covenant rather than under pornea explicitly. Pornea is, I think primarily sexual activity that breaks the marriage covenant. Um, so if I were to, to concede in a certain circumstance that uh, continued unrepentant pornographic use is a grounds for divorce, uh, I would say it's because it's breaking the marriage covenant, uh, not necessarily because it fits the, the word pornea in this passage explicitly. It's so, am I making sense to you? This- no, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me keep pressing this further because I think a lot a lot does hinge on how you sort this out. Um, so you're saying it's not restricted to adultery. I think sometimes people talk about the exception clause. They use like adultery as shorthand. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, whereas you're saying, Hey, the word is actually broader than just that. Um, but, but what do we, what do we do with maybe like if someone was to say, Hey, this really doesn't have in view like a one time sin. Um, is it like maybe it's just talking about someone who's habitually, you know, committing pornea or, um, what if the person repents? Does this exception only apply to those who are unrepentant? Like we're supposed to forgive and doesn't forgiveness mean we don't you know, like carry out the consequences of, in this case, divorce, uh, not that you're required to divorce, but at least it's permissible would be the idea. How do you, how do you answer those sort of questions? Well, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself cause I haven't looked at the passages in first, first Corinthians seven yet, but, uh, in first Corinthians seven, Paul, I'll paraphrase basically says, if your spouse deserts you, leaves you, let her go, let him go. You're free to remarry. Um, so I think there are at least two grounds that Jesus and Paul give for making divorce permissible. And if you read each passage, each passage lists only one exception. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I say, what is, what is the common thread between those two exceptions? It's those are examples of breaking the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant includes this pledge to fidelity sexually and being together and uh, living with one another, not not deserting the other. So if you fail to uphold the fundamental nature of the covenant, then that is grounds for divorce. It doesn't mean you need to get divorced, but it's grounds for it. So that's how I'm thinking. If, if a spouse commits adultery, then that gives the other spouse grounds for divorce. It doesn't mean you should. God forbid that my wife commits adultery. I don't know what I would do for sure, but my, my heart at this point would be to say, I want to be like Hosea and pursue my wife and not uh, pursue a lawful divorce. That, that, that'd be my heart. That's what I want, want to do. And I think that's a noble thing, but that's not required. Right. So as a pastor, I have to be really careful that I not pressure someone to do what God doesn't require. God does give the option of divorce in such settings. So your question was, does one act of, of physical pornea qualify or it does, it does, but that doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. Right. Yeah. So permissible should not be heard as, um, like required. It's not a requirement. He's not saying if there's sexual immorality, you must divorce them, but it permits. What about if the person repents? What if there's, you know, they say, Hey, I've repented. You can't divorce me. Like, yes, what I did was wrong, but that exception is talking about unrepented sin and I'm clearly repenting or something like that. Um, So this is, uh, it's understanding, misunderstanding some categories here uh, of repentance and what that entails. When I sin against a person and I come to that person and ask for forgiveness, I'm saying I did this sin against you. I've asked God to forgive me. Now, would you forgive me? You grant me forgiveness. What that accomplishes is our relational harmony. We are reconciled, but that does not eliminate consequences. For example, if, um, let's say, uh, I, I'll make something up crazy. I, I went to your house and I, and I smashed all the windows with a hammer. And I said, you know, Kurt, I, sh- I was sinful. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And you say, I forgive you. 
well, I still need to pay for the windows. <laughs> I need to replace the windows. There's still something more for me to do. Mm-hmm. And further, uh, it would be totally reasonable for you to be more cautious and guarded around me and to like there's some trust i'd have to rebuild with you before uh, we could be back to where we were before that incident there there are consequences to sin even if you could be relationally restored the restoration doesn't eliminate consequences so it's possible for an aggrieved spouse to forgive the other one and still proceed with the divorce those aren't incompatible Mm -hmm. And we should say too, like this doesn't mitigate against like Jesus's command that believers must forgive. Correct. Um, if we are to be forgiven, we are those who forgive as well. That's um, right. And so this isn't like there is there's there's no exception clause for forgiveness. That's not where the exception clause applies. And just to clarify, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Chris Bronze. He's a pastor in Illinois. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, wrote a book on forgiveness called Unpacking Forgiveness. And this is a little debate here. I'm not sure if you and your pastors would agree with him on this. I do. It's, it's a, a topic called, or it's called conditional forgiveness, which means the only way that I can forgive someone is on the condition that they ask me. Like, so let's go back to the breaking the windows analogy. Let's say I don't come to you and ask you to forgive me. I don't think you can actually forgive me in your heart yet until I come to you and ask for you to forgive me. What you can do is be ready to forgive me. I mean, you can bake the pie and ready to give it to me. You can uh, make sure that you're not full of bitterness and, and you know, sinful anger. Uh, you can, you can prepare your heart in those ways, but you can't actually forgive me until I come to you and say, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. Just like God doesn't forgive sinners until they come to him in repentance and faith. And then he forgives. So uh, that, that's how it works. Yeah. Now let me press on another, uh, point of interpretation here. So the passage, we're, we're kind of going along the lines of what you said was three, three A, three B here would, yeah. would fit this interpretation. Um, there's an exception clause, according to this interpretation, clearly permitting divorce in the case of sexual morality. Uh, is remarriage, though, allowed by this passage? Does the exception clause extend to saying, and therefore, you're also free to remarry? Yeah, and this is where I understand why people would take view two and say that divorce is permissible, but remarriage is not. Uh, it's it's not as clear in the Matthew passages. So, as an as an interpreter of Scripture, I have to take into context, I take take into account the historical cultural context, and I conclude from that that remarriage is always legitimate when the divorce was legitimate. So some people, uh, like John Piper, whom I respect so much, uh, would would uh, be very suspicious of what I'm doing here. I'm basically saying I'm, I'm trying to understand the historical cultural context of the first century. How, how did they understand divorce through marriage? What were they assuming as even talked about it? And how does what Jesus say, what, how, did, how does what Jesus said fit with that? So I, I think that um, to say that the historical cultural context that I'm, I'm understanding, which is that a divorce always means remarriage is legitimate, uh, some would say, no, you are eliminating what Jesus said by assuming that historical cultural context. And I'm saying, no, that was the way everyone understood it. It'd be like if I said, um, don't drink and drive today, 
nobody thinks that means I can't drink from my water bottle while I'm driving. Right. They, they mean, it means don't drink alcohol and drive. Don't drive while you're under the influence. There's certain ways of speaking where we just all know the context of what, what that means. And in this historical cultural context, which I explain in the paper, the, the concept of if a divorce is permissible, remarriage is always permissible. There's, there's this, there wasn't a teaching that rejected that. And I don't think Jesus refutes that or disallows that. Yeah. Is it, is it true that like some folks would have the view that essentially what Jesus is saying is if someone gets divorced, it's not really actually, it doesn't actually go into effect such that you're like in the eyes of God, you're still married. And that's where some of this, like uh, you commit adultery if you remarry or you cause the spouse to commit adultery. Is that where some of that comes in? Part of this is, I'll jump ahead in Luke 16, I think verse 8, Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So then people will say, if you get remarried, that's adultery. And this is where I'd say, no, I don't think so. Because a, a divorced couple is no longer married in God's eyes. That's the debate right there. Some would say, no, no, a divorced couple is still married in God's eyes. And even if a divorce is for the wrong reasons, legitimate or not, uh, I would say a divorced couple is no longer married in God's eyes. That's why Jesus could talk to the woman at the well and say, you've had five husbands. Uh, you've had five husbands. You you were really married five times. That was actual marriage, not married, married, not married. So the issue isn't whether the marriage is real or not. It's whether it's God honoring. So I, I, I here's the principle that I hold. A, div- a divorced couple is no longer married in God's eyes. Okay. So... So then you're kind of the assumption that you have then is if if Jesus is saying in these Matthew passages, uh, speaking of permissible divorce, divorce in its very meaning means that the marriage is ended and thus one would be free to remarry. So that kind of raises. Well, it means that the marriage is ended. Uh, So the only caveat I'd have there is remarriage is illegitimate when the divorce is illegitimate. Okay. So. So the marriage if, may be ended, but it may have been ended illegitimately and thus not giving permission for remarriage. Yeah. So if um, if a man divorces his wife because he thinks she's not pretty enough, that's an illegitimate divorce. And in God's eyes, he does not have grounds to divorce, and therefore he doesn't have grounds to remarry. Okay. So that brings up the question, um, which is how do we understand this language? And this is maybe where we can bring in some of those other synoptic passages where Jesus in, in all these passages, he says very similar things. They're slightly different, which is interesting um, about like who's committing the adultery. But he talks about um, those who uh, proceed in this way, um, however you understand that, they are committing adultery. Um, whether that's remarrying a divorced person or that's divorcing someone, there's this committing of adultery, he says, that's involved. What? How should we understand these passages and what he means by that phrase? Yeah, so I already quoted Luke 16. The other one is Mark 10, and it's the first like 12 verses or so. But at the end of that section, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, 
she commits adultery. So these are similar to Matthew 5 and 19, but the difference is that they don't have that exception clause that we heard, except for pornea. And I think that because in its historical cultural context, that phrase, whoever divorces his wife, assumes the exception that everybody, all the Jews shared at that time regarding the, the divorce debate. So it's if you divorce your wife for any cause, and, and Jews were debating that. So the question, I'm getting back to your question, but there, when people hear Mark and Luke, they say, they ask, why doesn't he say the exception that Matthew includes? And I think that Matthew is just explicitly including what everybody assumed, and Mark and Luke don't say it because it was obvious to everyone. And it's like um, if I say it's against the law to drive only 10 miles per hour on an interstate when the speed limit is 70, you know there are exceptions to that. You live in, in <laughs> Wisconsin. If there's a snowstorm and you can hardly see 10 feet in front of you, you might be driving 10 miles an hour right. and you won't get in trouble. Or in the summer when it's construction season and there's a traffic jam and you're going 10 miles an hour, you won't get a ticket for that either. So everyone knows there are, there are unstated uh, exceptions when you state a, a rule. Uh, and just, I could give examples and examples and examples of this one. I think this is similar in Mark 10 and Luke 16. He doesn't state explicitly the exception because everyone knew it and assumed it. And that wasn't the debate. Okay. So your question is, what does it mean then? to commit adultery. My take on that is if you are divorcing your spouse unlawfully, if you're divorcing your wife in a way that uh, does not have sufficient scriptural grounds, then you are making your spouse the victim of adultery. Now, what I just said might sound interesting. Where'd you get that? Well, back in Matthew 5, 32, there's this phrase in Greek that the NIV translates makes her commit adultery. Uh, no, no. I think the ESV says makes her commit adultery. The NIV says makes her the victim of adultery. Yeah, that's right. Makes her the victim of adultery. And I think there's something to that. Uh, in my paper, I, I quote uh, Craig Blomberg on that. So I, I think the translation makes her commit adultery leads people to conclude that the non-adulterous spouse is guilty of adultery if he or she remarries. But the translation makes her the victim of adultery, I think, uh, is more more precise and removes another argument for that never remarry view. Now, maybe I'm misunderstanding you or maybe maybe this will help bring clarity. But if you're saying the person who is divorced, if, per, if people uh, initiate divorce, even if it's illegitimately, like biblically illegitimate, you would still say the marriage has ended. Um, Correct. So then how is it adultery if they go on and remarry somewhere else, someone else or uh, make their uh, spouse the victim of adultery? Is Jesus using adultery in a little bit more of like a uh, like a broader sense? Like it essentially has the effect of adultery, like you so violated the marriage covenant to what should have been. Is that is that kind of what you're saying or help me understand? Yes. So. This is such a good question. I think the idea that a person is living in perpetual adultery for years and years and years because of a, a divorce without God's sanction is 
an unhelpful way to think about it. Uh, like I'll be real personal here. My mom and dad biological divorced when I was like five, not Christians at the time. Mom was Mormon. And then my mom remarried, uh, someone who just become a Christian. Um, and my mom wrestled for years after she became a Christian with, am I living in perpetual adultery because I have remarried? And I think the answer is no, you have repented to what you can of a divorce without grounds, though I think she did have grounds. So let's pretend she didn't have grounds and you have remarried and this is a real marriage in God's sight. You shouldn't think of yourself as living in perpetual adultery. Um, I think the idea is because you ended in, 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 in Mark 10 and Luke 16, the idea is if you dissolve a marriage without proper grounds, sufficient grounds, you are betraying your spouse, which is adultery. Um, so I think of that, that act itself as you're betraying your spouse, but I wouldn't think of like in perpetuity, everything you do, you know, you're, you're, it, it's adultery. I'd say you're, the, sure, the sure. wrong spouse is making the other one the victim of that, that treacherous act. And here's why I'm thinking of this way when I say treachery. Uh, the, the metaphor of marriage is way bigger than just a man and a wife in our experience. It's, it's Christ and his bride. That's why we have marriage and it's Christ and his people. There, there's a theme running all through the Old Testament of, of God and his adulterous spouse, his adulterous wife, Israel, uh, being an unfaithful spouse. Uh, and one of the main ways to portray that relationship is treachery of, of being duplicitously unfaithful to God in, in their, their brazen disobedience. So when, uh, a husband or wife breaks a marriage covenant, that's treachery. And that's the worst way uh, to treat your spouse. That's adulterous. How would, um, so, so you're presenting the, the view, the majority view that the sexual immorality being the exception clause here means sort of what a lot of us would assume it would mean on the surface. Um, if, if there are those who say like, Hey, you should actually never instigate divorce. What do they make with the exception clause? I know this would be like John Piper's view, which if you're interested, yeah. John Piper has a paper on desiring God. I believe you can find where he yeah. argues well for his view, even though I disagree and you would disagree. You can find this, yeah. but maybe walk us through like, what, what do the, like, there are obviously these other views. What do they make of these passages? According to this view, Pornea would not be sexual immorality in general as the big umbrella term, but something much more specific. It's very specific. It's fornication between betrothed couples. So this is where you have to understand the, the Jewish concept of, of what uh, a man and a woman do prior to marriage. So whereas we have engagement and then marriage in our culture, they have betrothal and marriage. And the betrothal was way more serious than our engagement. Uh, the betrothal was kind of like uh, uh, marriage 1.0. Like they weren't having sex during that time, but they were considered uh, um, 
much more permanently a couple than just an engaged couple in our society. So uh, John Piper and others would, would argue that when Jesus says whoever divorces his wife except for, for porneia, what he means is except for fornication between betrothed couples. That, that's how they handle it. Mm-hmm. And he would say that the reason it occurs in Matthew is maybe because there's a particular uh, audience in view. Uh, maybe I, I can't remember, but that might be what he argues. Or I know like yeah. Matthew has the account related to Jesus's virgin birth. And so I Just know that. Some, yeah. So that plays in where it's like maybe he's specifically trying to Matthew's specifically trying to um, speak into that context or something like that. So that's right. Let's let's move to Paul's writings now. And I will say we this just kind of like get this out there. This is kind of the obvious where everyone agrees um, is that everyone agrees that when someone's spouse dies, the marriage is ended and they're allowed to remarry. So you can look at passages like Romans seven. There are even statements within first Corinthians seven that we're about to look at where Paul talks about widows saying, Mm -hmm. hey, they can remarry. So it's like assumed there. Um, mm-hmm. they're free to be remarried. So that, that's assumed. So, so everyone agrees with remarriage in those cases. Um, so I thought I would, as, as we're talking about Paul, Paul makes that clear, but let's shift to what is the primary passage in this debate for Paul, which is first Corinthians seven. Can you walk us through, uh, what Paul's teaching on divorce and remarriage is in this chapter? Yeah. So what you just referred to as first Corinthians seven thirty nine. Uh, that a wife is free to marry whoever she wishes once her husband dies. So um, the passage you're, you're referring to is chapter 7, 10 to 16. So what Paul's doing is he's giving counsel to the married and then to the rest. So he said to the married, uh, the wife should not separate from her husband, which means divorce. It doesn't mean like our modern day separation as opposed to divorce. The wife shouldn't separate or divorce from her husband. And then he qualifies it. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should, should not divorce his wife. That's what, that's what he says to the married. And to the rest, he says, uh, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. So you can't divorce your spouse because he or she's not a Christian. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. So that's saying it is not permissible to divorce simply because your spouse is not a Christian. And then he says in verse 15 and 16, this is, this is the debate. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, meaning you don't have to stay married and, and you, it doesn't mean you can't get remarried. God has called you to peace for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. So he's saying a husband and wife should not divorce. That's the baseline. And he says a Christian shouldn't divorce a non-Christian spouse. That's clear. And then this is the debated part. A Christian may divorce his or her spouse if the spouse deserts him. And then if that's the case, you're free to remarry. So if, once you've divorced legitimately, you're free to remarry. I think that's what verse 15 implies. Now, there are a lot of principles you can draw from this, but one of the ones I draw from it, which is controversial, 
is that breaking the marriage covenant is a ground for divorce. Uh, so it's not, this passage doesn't mention sexual morality. All it mentions is desertion. So that's where I'd, I'd say, well, what's the commonality between porneia and desertion? It's breaking the marriage covenant. Is there anything else that can break the marriage covenant that's not explicitly physical sexual morality or physical desertion? And I'd say, yeah, I can think of some, some things like a man who refuses to provide for his household in any way when he's, when he's able to, or a man who instead of providing and protecting his family does the opposite. He brutalizes them. He's physically beating them. Uh, that's an example of breaking the marriage covenant. Now these texts don't say those explicit examples, but I would get there principially, uh, as I just explained. Back to you. Principally by, by like noticing that Jesus doesn't mention this exception, that Paul clearly extend. there's a principle that Paul's extending here. And I know right. there's a lot of conversation as well that can happen. This is where um, I know I've heard, like you mentioned, Wayne Grudem changed his view related to this particular phrase I'm about to mention. I know I, uh, Con Campbell, I think, um, which I, I'm not entirely sure where he lands on all these things, but I know he's mentioned this phrase in his work. But this phrase in verse 15, in such cases, Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that that phrase is, um, sort of saying this is one incident among other potential examples? Is that how you would understand that phrase? Yeah, I, I think what Grudem concludes is correct. He gives, he, he puts so much load bearing weight on that phrase to justify, to get to the same conclusion I do. And I, I don't need to put all the weight on that phrase to reach the conclusion in my view. I think sure. you can get there principally. So we get to the same place. Uh, we get there emphasizing different things. Now, how would the other views understand this? So it, it, it seems clear that Paul is saying if if your spouse abandons you, like in, specifically a, a non-believing spouse here leaves you, um, like you are not bound. Now that we can let's set aside the question of whether that implies remarriage. Let's just talk about divorce. Yep. Um, what for those who would say. Um, divorce is never permissible, would they just simply say, well, yeah, but that person, it's just the other person instigating okay. it, and you kind of have to go along with it. Is so that what that view would do would, would say, look at 1 Corinthians 7, 15 and 39. Verse 15 says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And verse 39 says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And I would say that those two terms, enslaved and bound, are synonymous uh, but they are actually different words. The first one is from dulao, second one's from deo. So uh, the minority view would say they're significantly different. Sure. And, and so in verse 15, the enslaved is specifically, you're not enslaved to stay married. You're free to get divorced, but you're not free to get remarried. And then verse 39 is saying, in that case, you are free to get remarried and that they're different there. Okay. What about like the, the, the view number one that John Piper holds? Would he even allow for divorce in a case like this? Or would he say, well, if the other person divorces you, that's one thing, but you, if they separate from you, like how would, how would he sort that out? Uh, so I said, I said view one very carefully, largely because of the feedback he gave me to make sure I represented him correctly. <laughs> okay. And so he's not saying never divorce, never okay. remarry. Okay. He's saying never Instigate. initiate divorce. Okay. So if your spouse initiates it, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, it's, but as long as that spouse stays alive, 
you shouldn't get remarried. Okay. And you're saying those two, that, that language in verse 39, the wife not bound. And um, I think some translations even say in verse 15, like n- rather than enslaved, I think I think I saw some that mm-hmm. said used bound, where they are different words in the Greek, but like the idea that there's, they're really getting at the same idea. You're saying that then it, that the parallel there between uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So therefore, if he's not alive, she's free. That would then in, free to remarry. That is that would imply that the person who is abandoned is also free yeah. to remarry. Remarry is that the argument? Yeah, and here's so I already gave you the the one reason I think that a Christian who divorces his or her spouse after the spouse deserts him is free to remarry, and that's that the bound enslaved verses fifteen and thirty nine are parallel. Here's another reason. The ancient Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world, they didn't even have a category for a lawful divorce that excluded remarriage. It wasn't even a thing. So uh, to a, to read that into this text when the text doesn't clearly undermine that, go against that, uh, I, I think is just not even understanding the historical cultural context. I've got a section in my article where I quote passage after passage from the historical cultural context where this is just assumed uh, it was a very, very common thing for uh, a bill of divorcement to say you are free to any man. Uh, meaning, with divorce means you're free to remarry. So to to try to read verse fifteen as saying you're not free to remarry, I think, is not reading it in light of its historical cultural context very well. All right. So that that really surveys uh, a lot of what what we see not only in the synoptics, but now what Paul says, I guess one of the practical questions could be Paul has in view in verse or in first Corinthians seven, the passages we just looked at a, a non-believing spouse who abandons, right. uh, their, their believing spouse. But what if you have a professing believer who, uh, seeks divorce, effectively right. abandoning their believing their other the, the other professing believers so say we have we have two members in our church that are married they're both yep. professing believers they're members and one is pursuing divorce unbiblically uh, what do we what do we do in a case like that um, so it's case by case um, but one way we've handled that as pastors is to treat it as a church discipline situation where the person who's initiating the divorce without biblical, precedent or would be undermining that person's profession to be a Christian, mm-hmm. which means we can no longer affirm he or she is a Christian and that we can no longer say you're part of our church. And thus we would treat that person as an unbeliever. And thus a non-believer who's abandoning their right. spouse. Yeah, we would right. handle it the same way. I think um, Jay Adams has a book on divorce and remarriage that um, – from what I can recall, would largely align with like the view that is being presented here in this episode. And I remember him him kind of working through that principle of um, effectively you're now, of course you could church discipline that person and they repent, but assuming that they don't repent, they're deemed an Mm -hmm. unbeliever at that point. Then effectively, if they're divorcing illegitimately, it is like abandonment then. Yep. Um, And then maybe if I can ask uh, very quickly about Paul's teaching on the qualifications for elders yeah. and deacons yeah. he mentions and these are passages like first timothy 3 2 uh for elders and then verse 12 for deacons um titus 1 6 for elders um he mentions the qualification the husband of one wife do these mm-hmm. passages then prohibit divorced and remarried individuals 
or divorced or remarried, I guess we could say, individuals from serving as elders and deacons. Okay, so let me really quickly walk through what I think are three wrong views of what the husband of one wife means. So one view would say the husband of one wife means an elder or a deacon must be married. And I'd say, well, that eliminates Jesus and Paul at least one point and Timothy. Uh, so I don't, I don't think I want to say that, that they couldn't have been elders at certain points in their lives when they're adults. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's what that means. It was just the norm that most people, most men were married. That's so that I don't think it just means married. Another wrong view, I think, is that it means the husband of one wife means monogamous. In other words, not polygamous, not multiple wives. And that's uh, Brian Chapel has a, a funny line. He said that'd be like saying an elder must not be a cannibal. It's like, well, yeah, an elder shouldn't be a cannibal. That would be a bad thing. But that wasn't really the main problem at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a third uh, wrong view, I think, is that the husband of one wife means not divorced or married to a divorcee. And that's how a lot of people take this. Uh, I've been in churches where if you've ever been divorced at any point in your life, you're thereby excluded from even being considered to serve as an elder or deacon. And here's how I'd respond to that. Uh, I'd say that the phrase husband of one wife essentially means you're faithful to your wife. So at this point in your life, you're above reproach by physically and emotionally romancing your wife and your wife alone. And just like a, a previous point in your life, you may have been out of control, disrespectable, violent, a drunkard, a brawler, could have even been a murderer like the Apostle Paul. But God can change your heart. And after a period of time, it's going to look different from culture to culture. But after a period of time, you can become in your community above reproach in a certain character and uh, characteristic. And this characteristic, faithful to your wife, is something that can become characteristic of you later at a later point in your life when it wasn't true earlier. So, and I'd say the character qualifications in First Timothy three and Titus one, they all they apply to all Christians. And and since divorce and remarriage are sometimes legitimate for Christians, I think it would be wrong to automatically disqualify someone who's been divorced, remarried. I think that would would stigmatize that person uh, in ways that you don't do for other sins. Um, so I, I would conclude that a divorced and remarried man could be an elder. doesn't mean he should be. There are other things to take into account, but I'm saying that doesn't automatically disqualify you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I John Hammett in his book, uh, I think it's called Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, has a helpful section on this, if I remember um, maybe we can close with with this question, uh, or th- maybe this pair of questions: Is why does a biblical view of divorce and remarriage matter for the health and mission of a local church? So we've got done outlining what we hope mm-hmm. to be a biblical view of these things. Why does it matter for our our health as churches and as believers? Okay, um, what we just did, or what I attempt to do in my article is to ask a question and then see what the Bible says about it. And that's that's called systematic theology. You say, what does the Bible say about transgenderism? And then you go ransack the Bible for the answer. We do that all the time. And that's, I'm a professor of systematic theology. So what I do, it's good. Problem with that approach could be, though, that you're asking a question in a way that the Bible is not directly focused on answering it. So if I were preaching through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians, bit by bit, I would try to 
ideally try to make the main point of my sermon match the main point of the text. Mm -hmm. And in no cases would the main point of the text be, let me tell you all the reasons that are permissible for divorce. (laughs) In each of those passages, the, the reason God reveals that to us is to make us soberly commit to being faithful in our marriages and to fight sexual sin and to, and these exceptions are kind of like, okay, and, and if this happens, you know, here's what to do. But the focus is be all in faithful to your spouse if you're married. Uh, so that, that's what I want to emphasize. And to get to your question, you said, why does this matter? Well, I put so much work into this because as a pastor, the only authority I have is the authority that I can show comes from the Bible. I can't just make something up and say, well, I'm your pastor, so you have to obey me. No, no, no. My authority is directly connected to what scripture says. So I have to explain and apply what God says. And it is wrong to permit what God forbids, but sometimes we forget the opposite of that. It's also wrong to forbid what God permits. So if God in some cases permits divorce and remarriage, and I as a pastor forbid it, then I'm going beyond what scripture says. So I, I, I think it, it would be, I would be unfaithful if I insisted that it's that initiating a divorce is never legitimate. Or if I insisted that remarrying after divorce is never legitimate. Or if I said a divorced or remarried man is automatically disqualified to be an elder. I think those would be forbidding what God sometimes permits. So that's why I went through the process of carefully explaining and applying these passages. I don't want to forbid what God permits. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks so much for being willing to uh, come on and, and talk with me and everyone else who's able to listen to this. Um, we pray that it's an encouragement to you as you listen to this. As, as you said, we want to think biblically. We want to think thoughts after God, be faithful to what he's revealed, what he said about marriage. Marriage is so important, um, not just because God has created it, and it's one of the things that he's ordained and placed in his creation is and has value in that respect, but also because it's meant to point to Christ and his bride, the church. Um, and so we have the opportunity to reflect the beauty of the gospel in our marriages. Um, divorce is never, is never, uh, is, is never a, a, a good thing, but it can be permissible. Um, and so we want to also, like, it's never, it's never a pleasant thing. There's no divorce no. that is ever, even no. if it's permissible, it's never, uh, never pleasant, never something that we should want, but in a fallen world, it, there are times where it's permissible and we also want to think biblically then about that as well. Um, so thank you for helping us do that. Um, one more comment here. I, as a, as one of the pastors of my church, I'll tell you, we probably spend more time in elder meetings, uh, discussing hard cases about this than we do anything else. Hmm. Um, so if you hold the view three, it will be more work for the pastors. View one is so crisp and clean and across the board, it's, it's open, shut applications for the most part. If you hold view three, it means a lot of work where you're praying and trying to understand and advise. And it's sometimes heart wrenching and you come away. Every case feels different. And, uh, that's where I'm so grateful to be part of a team of elders and not solo.
And and I think um, assuming that view three, yes, I agree with you. Being on a team of elders in these sort of difficult cases is a wonderful gift. Um, but view three, as you've presented it, is it allows for exceptions where um, we're, we're, we see scripture allowing for these exceptions where the marriage covenant has been severed. And so, as much as in as much as we also say, yeah, marriage is good, and the ending of a marriage apart from death is a tragic thing. It also is allowing for um, the protection of people who have been subject to uh, mistreatment in one way of one way or another. But then, and so we want to we want to make sure, like you said, we don't forbid things that are permissible. But there's also another ditch that's really common in our culture that's way too flippant to run towards divorce. Uh, is going to be much more lax in scripture, and we want to be care of that ditch as yes. well. We want to yes. be following scripture, um, allowing what it allows, but also not. Uh, granting allowances where it doesn't grant allowances yes. if our culture is running in that direction. Exactly. So it's well really important that we think biblically about these things because it's a, it's a matter of honoring marriage as God has created it. So thanks for joining us and helping us think through these things, Andy. Andy.